0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Political Incorrectors podcast. My name is Luke.
1: And my name is Eric.
0: It's good to be back. Uh, It's been five months since we recorded an episode. I know we always promise to get into a more regular upload pattern, Uh, but nonetheless, it's great to be back. And hopefully from here, we can finally fulfill our promise of uploading more regularly. Um, But yeah, it's great to be back here.
1: Yeah, I'm delighted to be back. Uh, just a pesky fly annoying me here, uh, but I, I'm delighted to be back. It's been a long time. I think you said before we started recording that it's been five months, uh, which is nearly half a year, which is crazy. Um, and I think it's probably worth sharing with listeners that uh, we developed a new fan uh, and a doctor uh, that I saw recently. And what he said to uh, me about Luke, Luke and my incongruency with regards to uploading was that we're like politicians, you promise everything on the manifesto, but then we never deliver when the time comes. But uh, we're hoping we're going to disprove him, <laughs> not only with this episode, but with future episodes, because we're going to be uh, uploading far more, I think, in the near future. Luke has been super busy with academia, you know the story already, and i just back from Belgium for my arousal program. So the past year, well, wasn't very convenient, but now you have... A better political incorrectness podcast. So uh, I'm really looking forward to delivering content to you all.
0: Yeah, hopefully we can keep going and uh, keep the doctor happy and uh, keep up with the episodes. Um, but yeah, look, it's been half a year, pretty much. Um, obviously, a lot we've done a lot personally, um, but politically, um, so much has happened in Ireland and across the globe. So much, um, you know, whether it's the no confidence motion in the government uh, a couple of weeks ago. Or obviously, to the extreme, the awful invasion of Ukraine. So much has happened that drastically changed the world since we last recorded. Um, so I suppose there's there's a lot that we could talk about. Um, but today we're going to focus on two subjects. And I suppose the first is just like a kind of snapshot of the state of Irish politics over the last few months uh, and what's happened over the past six months. And that kind of we'll look at that through a number of uh, different mirrors. And I suppose one of them is the most recent opinion polls. Um, that kind of, and obviously Opinion polls are a snapshot in time But I think if we were to look at the most recent one um, They're kind of all Pretty much similar, and of course Sinn Féin is on the very top um, And the Irish Times I just, I just grabbed the numbers that might go through the markets So people are aware that, That's like earlier this month, so 14th of July Sinn Féin are on 36% uh, Fianna Fáil are on 20% Fine Gael are on 18% And Labour are on 4% uh, And then the Greens at the very bottom there on 3%, so quite drastic numbers, really, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they, they absolutely are. Uh, something that I think is interesting to note from the outset, though, is that although uh, Sinn Féin are leading, uh, Fianna Fáil uh, follow and Fine Gael uh, follow Fianna Fáil, I think the biggest uh, trouble uh, that all of the parties are in individually, especially the top three parties, uh, fall on the Fianna Fáil side. I think it's actually funny how... Finnegill are third when it comes to popularity. Finnafoll are second. Yet it's Finnafoll that seems to be in the crisis with regards to happiness uh, amongst TDs like, in terms of where they're at, in terms of popularity, their ability to appeal to the electorate. So I think that's quite paradoxical because going by the poll alone, you'd think that it'd be uh, a flip uh, for, for between Finnegill and Finnafoll, but it's not. Uh, but I think the not so elephant in the room is Sinn Féin leading in the polls again, and I don't think there's been a poll since the general election where they've been anywhere but first, which is crazy. Um, they're just increasing in popularity. The leadership poll also showed that Mary Lou McDonald was number one amongst the leaders. Remember in a past episode, we talked about how Sinn Féin were number one as a party in a poll, and Mary Lou, I think, was second to Leo Varadkar, uh, whereas now Sinn Féin are leading in the individual leadership poll, but also in the... Party poll. So I think uh, the tide is turning positively for fin- uh, Sinn Féin, and it's only increasing when it comes to its impact. Uh, popularity is clearly there, and the continued popularity in the polls means that the polls can't be dismissed, I think, when it comes to thinking about Sinn Féin's popularity. Of course, we thought about some of the factors that might contribute to that, but Mary Lou being popular now, is interesting. I think the fact that we're living in a cost of living crisis that's only going to get wet worse. I think it's projected to worsen in the winter. would mean that naturally, whoever's in the opposition is going to gain if they effectively do what oppositions do. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see whether that heightens their popularity too.
0: Yeah, you're so, you're so right. And the the leadership. I, that's a really good point because before we had said, you know. Sinn Féin are a very popular party, but if you look at the the actual leadership numbers, Leo Vrijker was kind of always ahead from from that kind of the, the the start of COVID. He had a massive popularity boost, and he kind of stayed ahead. Um, but if you look at the figures now, Mary Lou's on forty three percent, Leo Vrijker's on thirty six percent, and Mio Martin's on forty percent. So he's not he's he's even less popular, judging by this poll, than Mio Martin, which is is very interesting. Um, but yeah, you said you said it really well there. It's it's clear if you look at those polls, any of the numbers, any of the recent polls, um, if you talk to anyone, uh, it's almost dead certain that at the next election, Sinn Féin are going to win quite quite massively. Uh, and the likelihood is that Sinn Féin will lead the next government. Um, and yeah, you're right again about the issues. I mean, there's so many issues in the country at the minute. The biggest one, the cost of living crisis, pretty much the cost of everything is going up if you walk into a shop uh, and now anyone uh, and picked up a basket of stuff, um, it's probably going to be much more expensive than it would have been six months ago you know everything's everything's risen i I work in a shop and and all this stuff has risen uh, in price by 50 percent and that's obviously out of pure necessity because of the cost of of everything so yeah it's the biggest issue and i think people feel like um that the government aren't doing enough um and the best way they can express their dissatisfaction is to say that um that's enough of Fianna Fáil, that's enough of Fine Gael. Uh, and those pesky Greens, um, we need a uh, change. It's, you know, tweedle do not tweedle They've had their chance and let's go with, with Sinn Féin. And that seems to be the attitude, judging by the polls, that seems to be the attitude. Um, and obviously I think Sinn Féin tried to kind of bring that anger and dissatisfaction together with their motion of no confidence in the government, which took place, I, I think, two weeks ago now. Um, and that was a big moment too.
1: It definitely was, uh, and I think it's, it's certainly worth getting into. But the last thing I'd say on the poll, though, is that in terms of gains, I think it's interesting to note that uh, so Fianna Fáil went down by three um, uh, points, uh, Fine Gael down by four, Sinn Féin up by three, but the independents, I think, met the largest gain, so they went up by five to 20%, so they're matched with Fianna Fáil, so technically they're second place beside Fianna Fáil, which is, I think, interesting as well. I know the independents... It's a diverse hodgepodge of different politicians with different ideologies and the like, but it's interesting to see just independent politicians doing well too. And if Sinn Féin do enter government, how they're going to try and pick into that independent group to see who's going to help them to form a coalition. Labour are 4% also, which I'm sure was something that they took uh, with a smile, um, because there's been questions about whether Labour um, I guess are going to do well with regards to their identity, appealing to the electorate and, and the like. But yes, the vote of confidence. Uh, <laughs> Luke and I were actually watching this with a friend of ours, Sean. Uh, <laughs> we were like uh, jamming messages into the WhatsApp group about different speeches, but it was really interesting. Um, I think all in all, uh, it would have, the outcome, of course, was favorable for the government. Uh, I think it was a very confident uh, win for the government. There was a huge Margin between those who voted in confidence or in favour of the government and those who voted against the government. I think it might be worth explaining for maybe listeners who don't know, a vote of confidence is just, as it, as it says, a vote of confidence uh, or no confidence in the government. So you have an opportunity to vote whether uh, you, you are happy with the government or vote against uh, uh, your happiness or you vote not in confidence with the government. And it's an existential question in that if the government uh, doesn't have a majority of people supporting them, then the government's uh, lifespan is threatened. Um, so the government won. Uh, the more people voted in confidence and uh, not in confidence. Um, it was forwarded by Sh- Sinn Féin initially uh, because some TDs uh, did not vote in favour or, besides, some government TDs did not vote with the government on particular questions in the I think one was the Mike uh, Redress uh, s- scheme, and another um, I think it was a while back, a couple of months ago, was some Green Party TDs who didn't vote in favour. Uh, of the government when it came to uh, the precise question was around. I forget. Luke, do you remember what it was? The which sorry. Uh, I remember a couple of months ago, I think some Green Party TDs didn't vote uh, alongside the government on a particular question. Was it a cost? Yeah. Oh, it was the church. Was, I think it was. Yeah, it uh, was the, yeah the church state question. Yeah, 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 so. yeah.
0: it was Nessa, Nessa Harrigan, I think, and uh, Joel O'Brien, I think, were the two who oh no patrick costello um, oh, yes I, th- I think it was i think you're right it was the uh mother and baby homes records uh sealed uh sealed the the records uh, vote i i think
1: it was actually it came to me <laughs> I, uh-huh. I think it was it was the uh hospital uh the hospital uh maternity uh-huh. hospital yes. so i don't know I, it took me a while <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh yeah, yeah Long, long Eric story short. <laughs> um, so, uh, the opposition Sinn Fein saw these people not vote in the government, not voting with the government, uh, as an opportunity to try and uh, see whether they'd have a majority of people voting not in confidence with the government, which would collapse the government. And they failed. And so, after this, I think the government would have been happy. But of course, that led to the polls, which wasn't so. Uh, tasty for the government. But the speeches, Luke, was, was what I found really interesting because I think in the speeches delivered in the doll, um, there's more time for government parties, less time for the opposition. But I think both sides really revealed the character. And a lot of I think shining figures emerged from both sides. I was really impressed with Ivana Basic's speech for the Labour Party, who was voting not in confidence with the government. I think truly uh, represented a level-headed, sort of, sort of commonsensical social democratic politics, which was unfortunately in contrast to some extent with the leader uh, leaders of the social democrats. Sue's speech, I, I think, didn't get to the bottom of what the social demo- democracy philosophy really offers—the exciting uh, nature of the philosophy that we see across Europe. I think Ivana Basić, if anything, is more of a social uh, democratic champion than the offerings you see in the Social Democrats only because I don't think they're really good representatives or harbinger for the philosophy, no real excitement, which I say, unfortunately, um, Sinn Féin, of course, you know, they told the, the archetypal Sinn Féin line of twiddledome, d, time for change, you know, the um, hier- hierarchy of FFG <laughs> is holding us down. We need something new and something different, which will appeal to a lot of people. And then in Fine Gael, uh, I think some, I think Owen O'Brien's speech was really good. I think Mary Lou's speech was phenomenal. It was really, really good. She's a fantastic communicator. Uh, and then with Cynthia Gale, the speeches that stood out for me were Pascal Donohue's. I think uh, he was fantastic, phenomenal. Um, and there were great speeches all around. It was really an interesting watch. I think entertaining for any political nerd.
0: Yeah, it was a, a night of high drama for sure. Um, and it was, yeah, so entertaining. It was like a SmackDown versus Raw um in the doll Chamber um there was some really good speeches um some I took down some highlights as well I think my favorite one was Heather Humphreys who's the uh, Minister for uh, Rural Affairs and Social Protection or something like that it's like a funny mix of things um but she uh she's I think she's from she's in the Cava um, constituency she's a real kind of rural woman with a real kind of uh Cavan accent or Monaghan accent and she got up and said and I'm not going to try and imitate her uh, but I'll tell you what she said Uh, and about Sinn Féin she said you know Sinn Féin are a flip-flop party Uh, when we opened the pubs during Covid you wanted to close them and we closed them you wanted to open them when we introduced targeted measures you want universal measures when we introduced universal measures you want targeted measures Uh, you say you wanted an emergency budget for Covid but now you're voting for the government to collapse Uh, and kind of just pointed out Sinn Féin's hypocrisy and said look your hurlers on the ditch, whatever way the wind blows, Sinn Fein blows. Uh, and I just thought it was a great, um, very kind of layman's terms attack on Sinn Fein's. What I do think is is, is cynical politics. Uh, and then the the Taoiseach said then as well, Neil Martin. He said that the debate of the motion of no confidence was a debate between those who believe in tackling problems and those who believe in exploiting them. Uh, and I do think that. Sinn Féin did exploit a lot of problems that have happened over the last few weeks, whether it's the you know the government losing some votes, so the three votes, as we said before, um, and the kind of wider um, cost of living crisis. Um, they use this anger to challenge this, to, to put forward this motion because they know the polls are in their favour and if there was an election, they'd likely win. And they just took it as an opportunity to, to kind of bring down the government rather than to like materially change anyone's position with the crisis that we have now with the, with the cost of living. Um, so I think they were dead right. Um, uh, I think the Taoiseach and I think um, Heather were, were spot on, to be honest with you, uh, is my analysis. And, um, you know, the government won. Uh, it was 80, 85 votes to 66, which is quite a convincing lead. Um, so there's definitely confidence for the government in the doll. And I'd be quite certain at this point. Um, unless something crazy happens, that it's likely that the government will last the, the next two and a half years. Um, I think if they survive what's happened over the past couple of months, they can survive the next two and a half years, personally.
1: Yeah, I definitely think internally, uh, within the um uh, the, the vote definitely solidified the government's um, place in, in leadership. I don't think there's any substantial chance, as you said, Luke, of that place being questioned uh, for the next a term, although uh, one of the things that I'm sure uh, we both come across in recent times, and many people who might be listening to this, um, is the crisis within FINAFOL. It's something that I alluded to uh, earlier uh, when talking about the polls. Um, there's a lot going on right now to um, essentially, I think, reckon with the question of who FINAFOL is. And this is a question that we actually broached earlier, uh, uh, I think last year, maybe two years ago. We had Oremu Jimmy, who was the former Coherlock of the Longford Municipal District on our podcast and of course a representative of the Fianna Fáil party uh, on the local council in in Longford um, where Luke and I are based, uh, mighty Longford and we talk with Uramu about Fianna Fáil and their identity and whether they have uh, a distinctive identity that will appeal to uh, the populace and particularly younger cohorts within the populace now and into the future. And then it was a question that people were asking and thinking about, and certainly Luke and I were thinking about in our conversations on the podcast, but now it's something that I think is right in the face of everybody who cares for politics, or cares for the Fianna Fáil party. So much show that recently there was uh, a meeting uh, of, I believe, 30 TDs and senators um, who came together uh, essentially to discuss how Fianna Fáil can just set itself apart uh, from other parties, amongst other questions. Brian Cowan, I think, was one of the most notable politicians at that meeting, and he's come out um, publicly to talk about the need for this and how the parliamentary party might be out of touch with backbenchers who are really thinking about this issue, which is really, really interesting. Uh, it's a worry, I think, for many within Fianna um, and it's going to be interesting to see where things go. And on the question of um, the government surviving for the rest of its tenor, uh, I think uh, uh, claims came out that backbenchers in Fianna Fáil don't want um, uh, the the rotation towards Leo Varadkar for him to become T shop to occur in December as it's scheduled to, as per the public program for government. And they claim that if it does happen, if Leo Varadkar does become the T shop, um, then some TDs within Fianna Fáil might be ha- happy and take action that might threaten the government's lifespan, uh, life existence. Which is interesting news uh, all in all. I wonder how you interpret the whole. I don't know if we can call it Fianna Fáil, Identity crisis.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting, and it's probably like the, one of the biggest stories of this whole government is like seeing Pinafall evolve from you know a completely irrelevant party that people thought were dying to leading this government, and now they're in, as you said, a kind of identity crisis. Um, and I think people try to frame this meeting of TDs to discuss the party's future as like a kind of backbench backbench Pinafall revolution. And I think Jennifer Bray, I listened to a podcast, the Irish Times political podcast. Uh, and she said, "It's it's more so just this kind of perennial, uh, Fianna Fáil identity crisis that they just they just don't know who they are or what who, what they stand for, um, and they have been for a while. This party that kind of just flip flops between positions and tries to appeal to the widest group possible. Um, and yeah, I, I I think to be honest, I think they're just afraid about what the future holds for them. I think they see Fine Gael, and even though Fine Gael, if you judge the polls, they're, they're slightly less popular than Fianna Fáil are." I think they see that Fine Gael has their identity kind of tied down as this centre right party. They're like economically liberal. They're about balancing the budget. They're about you know trying to put money back in families' pockets, and um, they're stridently against Sinn Fein's policy um, and position. Whereas Fianna Fáil, I think, are much much softer on whether they'd go in government with Sinn Fein first of all, um. But they they just don't know where they stand because they see that Fine Gael has that space. They see that Sinn Fein has their space, and they're somewhere. Kind of in the middle, I think, um, and they just don't know what the future holds for them. I think it's that fear that's making them think about their identity and their future, um, and they blame a lot of it, I think, unfairly, on Mihal Martin. And um, they see that if Michal Martin's gone, then that will somehow, you know, make way for them to find an identity. Um, but I mean, if you look at anyone on their benches at the minute, like some of the names that you that you hear when when it's thrown up about the future leaders, like Jim O'Callaghan, Derek Leary, Michael McGrath. With all due respect to them, they're just so boring. Like they're they're not going to help Fianna Fáil get an identity. The most exciting name you hear is probably Darrell O'Brien, the minister for housing. He's still not great. Uh, with peace and love to Darrell O'Brien. Um, I think some of the more interesting backbenchers in the Dáil are Jack Chamber. Or no, more interesting names are members of the government. Uh, Jack Chambers potentially. Norma Foley could do a good shot of it, but still, uh, I don't think it's inspiring. The more inspiring people for me in Fianna Fáil are in the Shannon. I think if they were to try and find someone to get in at the next all, the likes of Lisa Chambers, Malcolm Byrne, I think they have a kind of they center-left kind of Republican um outlook that could work for Finoff But at the minute, I just I just don't see it um in the party. And they're using this confusion to target Michael Martin, which I think is completely unfair, and to say that Michael Martin shouldn't bring the party into the next election, when really I think they should be thanking Michael Martin for making the party relevant again in this government. He's done a great job, I think, as Taoiseach. Um, He takes himself seriously. He positions himself as someone who takes the job of government seriously. And rather than kind of appreciate that and, you know, appreciate him as someone who kind of stepped in and saved the party when it could have died, uh, they're just kind of like bratty uh, teenagers who aren't happy with the direction and they're worried about their seats, I think. Um, And I think they're going about it the completely wrong way. But of course, I could be completely wrong.
1: No, I totally agree with you, Luke. Uh, I don't think there is one point, uh, actually, that I disagreed on uh, or that I question in, in what you said. I think Bjorn Martin uh, has done a, a really good job. In the leadership poll, I believe that he came uh, third behind Leo Varadkar, uh, yet still, I, I think he's still uh, amongst... Um, the, the the top three, you know, which you'd say, you could say is to be expected to a certain extent, considering Fianna Fáil's long-standing popularity in Irish politics, the fact that they're in government, but to be a Taoiseach and to be, you know, in, in, the, in the, in the, amongst the top three, I think is something not to be found upon. I think he's been rather popular in previous polls, considerably popular, considering the fact that he's a Taoiseach in a rather difficult moment for the state. He has managed uh, affairs, state affairs quite well. I think he's represented Ireland quite well and taking the job very seriously. Uh, and I think there's a lot to be happy about if you're within Fianna Fáil about what Michal Martin has done, considering the the ingredients that he's been given, uh, you know, in light of the predicament we're in right now in Irish politics. Uh, I do uh, completely concur with your point about what else, you know, the other offerings within the party. I think they really need to be looking at distinctiveness. They have to be looking at something tangy, something you can taste. Uh, like the, we've talked about uh, personally and privately, the culture war occurring right now between Fine Gael and, F- and Sinn Féin, both of those parties have something. Uh, I'm actually working on a piece on this subject at the moment, and something that I think about from a uh, sporting perspective, as someone who used to play, but regularly is, you know, you love being on the winning side, you hate being on the losing side, but what's worse than both is being on the bench, you know, you want to be playing, <laughs> you want to be in the game, you want to be able to influence the affairs of the match. And feel Fall right now, I think, simply aren't in the game. And even though they're in government, it's ostensible security, because as soon as that's over, you don't know where you'll be, because you have nothing tangy, mm. no, nothing fruitful, tasteful for people that actually experience as being offered by the party. It's a party of republicanism, but when you think of republicanism, who's the first, what's the first party that pops in your head, for example? I know it's supposed to be prudent, uh, you know, caring for balancing the books. But when we think of that first party, as you alluded to earlier, that pops your head is Fianna Gael. Uh, environmentalism, uh, when you think of that, you think of the Green Party. So there's nothing really that pushes Fianna Fáil in the lane of its own. And I think it needs to find out if it's going to appeal to any cohort within the Irish electorate. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how they take form uh, in, in the coming years and what they do to really stand out um yeah uh, it's going to be interesting i can't wait to see those young faces as well that you name from the shine emerge and see what direction they take the party into um but something uh, luke that um of course is, is very presci- important now uh i think it's going to have a prescient impact in irish politics in that it'll predict uh the, the state of it uh, coming into or coming into the new year there's a cost of living crisis which you talked about earlier and the big question i think that government parties have been dealing with, but also the opposition is whether more action needs to be taken. And um, this, I think, it's not necessarily a complicated, it's a complicated political question in that uh, it offers an opportunity for, uh, I think on the opposition side, you know, posturing as if it's an easy solution, all you have to do is apply the X key and all, all problems are solved. And I think the traditional response from the government side is, you know, we're doing all we can, if you were in government, you'd see that, stay off our backs and do what you do best, throw rocks. Uh, but I think in between, there've been a lot of uh, interesting contributions from both sides, but also from independents uh, as well, about intervention that could occur and state bodies, uh, and the CSO, I think have chimed in to some extent, um, the Irish Financial Advisory Council too. Um, there's also, was a report from the EER, AS, ER, Yes, all right about what the government can do at these times. And I actually watched uh, Leo Varadkar on the Tonight Show Virgin Media, and on Virgin Media talking about the issue also. And I think the big question has been uh, about whether there should be a universalist approach taken with measures introduced or whether there should be a target approach. To explain a universalist approach is an approach that aims to uplift everybody, just a rising tide that lifts all people up or targeted approach, targeted at the most vulnerable groups within society. Uh, and I think Leo Radka talked about how they'll be both, but he was making the case for a universalist approach that specifically impacts middle-income households um, that are stuck in the middle, like in an awkward position, where they can't get the medical card uh, because they're seen as too wealthy, but at the same time, they're not as well off as very wealthy families, so they're hurt. And that, I think, is the traditional Fine Gael voting base to a certain extent. But Sinn Féin have been calling for uh, um, an emergency budget implemented now. And this is actually a popular idea, I think, in the Tory leadership uh, race, which we're going to get into soon. A lot of candidates, uh, two that come to mind are, I think, can be uh, called for it, but I don't know if it was, I think it was Liz Truss 2. I can't remember. This from a more conservative perspective, calling for an emergency budget, whereas the government have tried to talk about how budget Uh, we need to wait until the budget because if we introduce measures now it might fuel uh, inflation so it's been a really interesting one luke and i think the responses reveal i think the underlying political reality that exists within every country um you know you saw that as i said the opposition traditional opposition approach traditional government approach some nuanced responses in between i think the most important thing to remember is that real lives and real families are being affected by this and effective governance is needed but we need to try and see how we can lessen the squeeze on families because it's been really tough.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing you said there I found interesting about, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the, the calls for an emergency budget here in Ireland, and that's kind of led by Sinn Féin. And you said that the conser- two Conservatives, Kemi Badenoch and Liz Truss, interestingly, two of the most populist figures in the Tory leadership debate, and we'll get into that. Um, but I think that's exactly it. Like, it's it's a populist call because it's something that it's it's, it's easy to say an emergency budget now, let's do it, let's fix the problem. But what specific measures will be included in that emergency budget that can't already be brought in now? Um, And I think it's something easy to throw out. And, you know, back to kind of what Heather Humphrey said, this is the Sinn Féin thing of kind of attacking the government for not doing enough, uh, but opposing everything they do and asking for the opposite and not really putting forward their own agenda. Uh, And obviously... The cost of living crisis—it's—it's it's awful. It's having such an awful effect on families uh, in Ireland, but also all across the world. It's something happening uh, everywhere, um, due to a lot of reasons. Obviously, Ukraine war being one of them, and the cost of energy um, as a result of the geopolitical consequences of that war. Um, but I think I, I sat down and tried to look at some of the things the government have done, and you know, th- there's people out there who'd have you say, would who'd have you think that the government are kind of sitting back known as a crisis that's really affecting families and people out there and they're just kind of sitting back like all right lads we'll just wait till wait till the budget um but they they have done stuff and to, to give them credit again and um, not to be like a kind of government mouthpiece here uh but like let's let's see so they're abolishing be careful luke
1: be careful <laughs> <laughs> that, that,
0: that to be um hospital charges for children are going to be abolished so that's one way to you know keep money in the family uh keep Money in family pockets. Uh, free cons- cons- contraception for women aged 17 to 25, another good measure. measure. They increased the minimum wage this year. Uh, student grant increases are coming in the next budget, so that would be a good thing that will help young people and families alike. Uh, free school transport for the year, so free buses for families going to schools. It's another good thing. Uh, and lower levels of tax on petrol, diesel, electricity, gas. Um, that's ever been there. So there are just some things that I took down to the government are doing. So they're 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 constructive things that will have a tangible effect on families' incomes and people's incomes and their pockets at the end of the day. But the question is, is it enough? And will the electorate feel like they're actually being held properly? And to be honest, if you talk to people, it probably isn't. I don't think the majority of people are feeling the effect of government's help in their lives at this moment in time. And I just hope that come the budget in a couple of months' time, the government can do things radically. That will transform people's lives and make them feel like they have more money and more ability uh to get through this crisis of living um so yeah the budget will be yeah. one interesting to watch
1: yeah I, I have no behavioral data to back it up but i'm sure intuitively uh that people are more likely to feel a negative uh, a negative impact in their life than a positive one i know that we humans we we don't think uh, in a relative context right now we're living in the best time it is to live as a human being, economically speaking, relative to our forebearers. And yet when something hard hits us, you know we feel it as if we're the only ones to ever exist. We live within our own dimension because we don't have a relative dimension in how we think, which I know that, okay, that's a behavioral finding. So I think when it comes to the positive measures that you speak to, uh, despite the fact that they're being done, uh, a huge cost for any government across the world is the fact that you have a populace that is less likely to feel uh, these things, and they're more likely to think of it as marginal and ephemeral if they're not in touch with current affairs and politics, you could say uh, than those who are in touch with current affairs and politics. so communication will be important, but also with the budget, I know there's it's an unprecedented budget because the plan originally packed uh, with Pascal Dina, who uh, being the finance minister, was for the budget to allow for i believe a five percent uh, increase um, every time that it was introduced. Um, yet I think this budget uh, I think. Uh, was above a 5% increase relative to the last one. I think it's a 6.7, sorry, not a 5%, but a 5 billion uh, euro increase. I think that was a specific figure. I may be wrong, but it was over that with this budget. So it's unprecedented in the sense that it was higher than it was planned uh, beforehand. Uh, And the increase in spending, I think, is reflective of the times that we live in too. So this, I think, is another uh, measure being implemented by the government that it's trying to speak to the crisis for what it is, you know, a crisis. But it's another measure I think that's hard to communicate because it's not palatable no matter what form it takes. Uh, I think ultimately for me, uh, when it comes to the Sinn Féin, the government question on the budget is whether it's practicable to introduce an emergency budget or whether it's not. And both the arguments look like they're supported or are against it. And I think the arguments against the emergency budget has mainly been inflation. Uh, But I never think we should look at that uh, from face value and say, okay, inflation bad, so be it, shove it out. Because in in the case of COVID, we knew that putting money in people's hands and which would increase spending could cause inflation also, but we thought it was necessary considering the challenge. So I think it's a question of trade-offs, which is uh, something we've talked about time and again, Um, you know, and and trade-offs, how you see them are dictated by your ideological outlook. So Sinn Féin will see trade-offs in a kind of pro-left way, Um, Pro left populist way whereas the government will see it in a different perspective based upon their ideological outlook Um, and I think ultimately we have to try and be rooted in data, what impact will it have is it worth the blow and which will hurt working people and ordinary people in Ireland more Um, and I guess in politics there's never a right quote unquote answer to these questions Um, yeah so it's it's a really interesting one and I can't wait to see things, how, how things move forward Clearly, not enough people on the door thought it was a question to uh, topple that could topple the, the government. They had a lot of support. Um, but will, will, once the public have their say in election time, will this be something that comes back to bite? Uh, will the external environment bite the government, even though the internal one doesn't, and when the time comes? Or will we come out of this, not untouched, but relatively okay? And might that actually boister government support? Um, it's going to be interesting to see how. These questions are answered.
0: Yes and I guess we'll just have to wait and see and if we keep our promise to that lovely doctor we'll talk about this lots over the next uh, few weeks and months and keep an eye on it. Um, but other big news to kind of shift away from Ireland for a bit, um, in the midst of all the high drama of of no confidence and the risk of the government falling apart here, um, Boris Johnson was hounded out of office by 60 of his fellow party members um, bye bye, Bojo.
1: <laughs> I've always yeah. wanted to say that for the sake of iteration.
0: <laughs> you, you got your moment, Eric. You got it. Yeah, he's gone. And it was, um, I mean, you were probably the same as me, Eric. I was absolutely glued to Sky News. I was trying to do bits during the day and it was, it was always there. Um, and all those Sky News presenters, I like, feel like they were my best friends over those few days because they were keeping me entertained. Um, but it was crazy to watch as, you know, initially um, Sajid Javid, the Chancellor, or no, Sajid Javid, he was the health secretary, and Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, both resigned at the pretty much same time. And that just triggered resignations after resignations after resignations. There was a live counter on the news of counting how many people would go. And every half an hour, it felt like there was more people going. Um, it kind of, the the one that the thing that spurred people on, I think, was the allegations and um crisis or you know scandal around Chris Pincher, who I think was the deputy government chief with, uh, and there was allegations of um, sexual harassment labelled against him. Uh, and apparently Boris Johnson knew this, but still promoted him. But he lied about knowing about it. And it just, um, it, it turned into a big scandal of did he know, did he not know, What? when did he know? And, you know, he lied. Uh, Downing Street lied to the press. Um, but I think a lot of it, um, I think Tory MPs just saw it as time. This is just one more thing, another lie from Boris Johnson. So it's time for him to to go. But it was a really dramatic few days and really entertaining few days. I'm sure you'll agree, Eric.
1: No, no, it certainly was. In terms of uh, being glued to Sky News, I actually feel like I'm personal friends to uh, Kay Burley and Sophie Ridge right now, <laughs> uh, because of how much I was watching them as the drama unfolded. And I, I think in terms of why the resignation came, you really hit the nail on that. And the Chris Pincher uh, allegation was simply rather uh, controversy was literally the straw that simply the straw that broke the camel's back. And there was thing after thing after thing. Of course, party gate was a huge um, catastrophe for the Boris Johnson government. Uh, There were lies told um, about whether a party, a full-fledged party took place. And when uh, an investigation was occurring to try and see whether a party actually happened, Boris Johnson was, number one, uh, lying about at the um, occurrence of such a party and deferring to the investigation process to try and buy himself time, which he did very effectively and he introduced, pop- introduced populist policies, which I think political commentators called red meat, to throw out to the public, to get to distract them essentially from what was occurring behind the scenes in Downing Street and in the Conservative Party. Uh, but I think his time came, uh, the bell rang, and eventually what a lot of people have wanted to see has happened, that Boris Johnson has stepped down. I think I found it to be an example of how cold-hearted Machiavellianism in in politics serves one only to a certain extent. And after a while, integrity does matter, honesty does matter. And if you don't uphold these values, it's going to bite you on the back. And Boris Johnson, I think what worked for him for a long time was that he was seen as the leader who could win, who could get things done, the mandate that he won from the British public, which is probably the wrong way to frame it, uh, winning a mandate from the British public per se, but the majority that he won in, in the election that put him into his position of political power was astounding and was very strong and was historical in a sense. Um, so I think that is something that worked in his favor. He was seen as a quote unquote winner, but when push came to shove, integrity mattered. And I think that's what essentially toppled Caligula from his uh, uh, emperorship. Uh, and here we are in a position where there's a Tory leadership contest and this has probably saw me uh, uh, tied to my television and my laptop more than anything. It's been really interesting to see. Uh, initially, I think I think there were a dozen people who came forward initially uh, to to run. A lot of familiar faces, to so Jeremy Hunt, who ran to be the Tory leader last time and who lost in the final to Boris Johnson, um, Sajid Javid, and um, as we expected, Rishi Sunak, and uh, N- N- Nadim Zahari as well. Uh, So these are, I think, the popular figures, and a huge surprise for me, Luke, was the fact that in the first round, many of these popular figures were eliminated, and I think it became boiled down to figures who might be seen as underground figures, but nonetheless spoke to the heart of the Conservative Party base. And uh, I think that's an interesting revelation for the Conservative Party, but for everyone interested in politics in uh, the United Kingdom.
0: Yeah. Um it's it's a it's it's a it was just um, I feel like it was a it felt like I was watching a soap opera uh, when I was watching this. Um, the one highlight for me was um, that so he hadn't resigned yet. Um, he appoints Nadim Zahawi to be his chancellor. Um, Nadim's happy about this to be Boris Johnson's uh, chancellor. You know, one of the biggest offices in the state. The next day, Mister Zahawi, the newly appointed chancellor goes to Boris Johnson and threatens to resign if Boris Johnson doesn't resign. So it's just like big power grab. He's chancellor. And now he's like, thanks, but, you know, you need to go now. Um, it was crazy. And then, you know, that day as well, he made Michelle Donelan. I think her name was, the secretary uh, for education. And I think she resigned the next day. So she lasted one day as uh, secretary of education. There was these crazy moments, um, it like House of Cards, you know, like these c- crazy political moments. But obviously what we have now is an equally crazy leadership debate. That's had some you know really interesting moments, really interesting figures emerge. Uh figures emerge that not from obscurity, but people you'd you'd never think would be you know on that stage trying to be the next prime minister of the UK, especially when you look at people like like you said, Jeremy Hunt, Saji Javid, uh Nadeem Zahawi, who were who were there trying to put themselves forward, and they ultimately um didn't get near the top. Um and at the top, I think you know, in those last few debates, you had so you had Kemi Badenoch, Tom Tugan um penny mordant rishi Liz um those five were kind of the, the main ones and what an interesting group of people like fascinating stuff to watch um scary for the UK um but fascinating group of individuals um you know you have the I think Tom Tugendhat was probably the most normal person there um, kind of center left of the party I think he was a remainer he was in the army he really wanted a, a fresh start or a clean start I don't know what he why he said it over and over again um, and you know you had these great extremes. You had you know the kind of more centrist, moderate people like Tom. Uh, you have Liz Truss, who is a very interesting figure to say the least. Um, and you, I think, the most interesting person we spoke about this a lot over the course of the few days of the debate was Kemi Badenok, who I think her last position was an equality secretary. And um, but she was a fascinating individual, um, quite populist, quite right wing in her. Uh, positioning but uh, i think we spoke about her most probably out of anyone on the those final five
1: yeah no we definitely did uh, and not probably because of uh, my obsession uh with her with her with her getting so far in the race i think that really took me by surprise and i've done a lot of digging into kemi bad Enough over the past while and I actually wrote a piece uh involving kemi Badenoch that i shared with luke that you could all access on um uh, i don't know if i'll go into it now but uh, <laughs> uh it's called um go for, um, it. Go for it. Uh, representation in politics matters or does it uh and you can access it on the political edge which is a political media outlet uh, that publishes pieces on politics uh, so yes uh, check it out i'd appreciate it lots of love eric from the <laughs> political director's podcast um but Kevin badenoch really stood out to me of course i'm nigerian she's nigerian british so uh, there there's one part of my brain that was thinking, okay, representation matters, this is a big deal, this is really appealing to me as someone interested in politics. But then a lot of commentary around uh, can be bad enough. And it's important for me to note that an unprecedented number of ethnic minorities actually went for uh, the Tory leadership um, uh, leader post, and therefore... 10 Downing Street, the position as Prime Minister, um, which is to me a, a big deal as someone who cares about representation in politics. We actually talked about this in our last episode with Isabel Flanagan, a former member of the Sock Dems, and Jane Butler of Fianna Fáil. Um, and I think it's a big deal, someone running from an ethnic minority background to be the Prime Minister. But a lot of commentary around Kevin Badenock was very pejorative, I think very derogatory, very not disrespectful per se, but critical. And I think the classical argument was that she's a part of the Tory party. I don't care if she's from an ethnic minority background. Her politics are destructive for people from minority backgrounds. My uh, perspective is that a lot of people making this point come from a traditionally left wing outlook. So they're obviously going to think that the Tory party politics is bad. If you spoke to someone in the Tory party or the conservative, uh, from a conservative political background, they might favor bad knock and use the representation argument. Me, as someone who of course has my political character, but cares more for representation, more than anything because of what it brings to a political culture. I think Cami getting involved in politics is incredibly inspiring. As someone who is a Nigerian-Irish, that was a big deal for me seeing her on stage. Luke will tell you, (laughs) you know, debating. Um, So yes, I think representation matters and it's something that we should promulgate. There will be people who undermine it as a value because of political bias, but I don't think we should let that get in the way if we truly care for representation, or else we're promoting hegemony and not different voices. And I think this is something about Kemi Badenov that really saw her increase in popularity. I watched tons of her interviews, listened to some podcasts as well, and her whole approach um, has been one which has been unorthodox in that she's been critical of the BLM organization, for example. Um, She's also was one of the bringers of the Sewell report released two years ago in the UK in the height of the BLM, protest, which essentially made the case that systemic racism was not the only reason for disparities between ethnic minorities, but she's also a fan of Thomas Sowell, uh, a conservative economist in the USA, who essentially makes a similar argument when it comes to looking at disparities between groups, we need take a more analytical approach and the like, and I think this is a very, uns- like, uh, unpalatable thing for a politician to do, uh, only to a particular cohort uh, that might be interested in it. She's a quite scientific politician in her analysis because of her engineering background, so she claims. So I think she's a very unorthodox figure and it appealed to a large swath of the conservative base. I think if she had got to the final two now, she would have been the undeniable winner. Uh, I think we would have been able to predict it in advance because of how appealing it is to the conservative base. So yes, Kemi Badnock, an interesting figure. I certainly don't agree with her politics. I say that on record now, but I come from a town called Longford, which taught me not to judge people by the color of their politics, by the content of their hearts. <laughs> so uh, yeah, uh, and now we're left with Liz Trust and Richie Sunak, And something that's important, Luke, is for us to think about how they'll be for Ireland, because I don't think any <laughs> would have been great for Ireland. So like in the US elections, I guess it's a question of who's the lesser of two evils from our perspective.
0: Yeah, and look, I, I had a little bit of a think about this, and uh, to be honest with you, I think they're both bad for Ireland ultimately, um, because they're part of Boris Johnson's uh, cronies. They were in his government up until the very end. Um, clearly, no interest in you know peace on the island of Ireland. Just interest in their kind of Brexit little, you know, brainchild that they think is going to make the UK a great place again. But I know you know clearly isn't. Um, obviously, initially, if you spoke to people, they'd say that, you know, anyone but Liz Truss. But I think that's just because Liz Truss was the foreign secretary and was the one who was talking about this issue um, and who was against the Northern Irish Protocol, the, you know, the border being down the Irish Sea. Um, even though that was agreed with the EU like three years ago, um, they decided that they're going to go against it now because it's not working for them, like the rest of their Brexit project. project. And interestingly, actually, just a side point on Brexit. Um, if you want to see how they're both practically the same, on the BBC debate, I think it was, I didn't actually see the whole thing myself. Um, but, you know, they're both talking about wanting to be honest politicians, you know, they want to be, you know, a break from Johnson. Um, and there's been massive trouble at the ports in the UK recently with, you know, obviously the, the new customs checks because they're outside of uh, the EU, which is their own decision. Um, but the presenter asked, is this the result of Brexit? And they both nearly jumped at each other to say no, quick, you know, quickly, uh, to say this has nothing got to do with Brexit. But they're liars. Um, and they they just want to make this Brexit thing work. Um, interestingly, Liz Truss was a Remainer back in the debate. But, you know, like Boris Johnson, I think she's a political opportunist and she'll change her colours uh, to suit what she thinks will get her votes. Um, so I think we know more about Liz Truss because of the nature of her being Foreign Secretary. But I'd imagine if um, Rishi um, supports the line of that government, he'll be much the same, to be honest with you. I think it's going to be a challenging time ahead for Anglo-Irish relations. Um it's probably not going to be good to be honest.
1: Yeah, something that I've really appreciated from our Tony Shalih Varadkar is how honest he's been when talking about the UK. Uh, I think that's something that he's appreciated for generally in politics just being really candid and honest and honest uh, not necessarily by his political friends <laughs> because it's costly having to face the truth as it is but On uh, the UK relations, he's time and again talked about how it's in a really hostile place. I agree the most hostile place it's ever been in uh, over the past few decades. And I think from our perspective, this is really shaky because the Good Friday Agreement and historical terms, relatively speaking, was only yesterday. And we don't need things shaking it up now, especially with calls for United Ireland from Sinn Féin, who might be in government in the South and who uh, have a First Minister in the North we need relations to be stable. We need things to be going okay. Brexit just happened, which caused severe disruption. We need things to be steady. And uh, In the UK, I think we have no assurances of this right now. Boris Johnson, uh, as you said, look a political opportunist. Uh, likes of Jacob rees in his cabinet, and his trust, uh, Rishi Sunak, simply trying to, I think, dance around the reality of Brexit when it comes to its negative consequences, to sell the populist vision and argument of, Sovereignty, womti womty, you know, the talking points. Uh, to be completely respectful, because maybe there's a philosophical case to be met for sovereignty, but still. Um, so it's going to be important for whoever enters number 10 to, you know, deal with things that they are. Um, yeah, I think the NI protocol bill, uh, assuming that both are going to support anyways, which is essentially going to, as you said, back backtrack on the agreement to import the border of the Irish Sea. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. It's hard to know who will be uh, best for Ireland, but to go with the piecemeal things I think we've been given from both candidates, trust stayed until the end with Boris. And her a big argument she's using against Richie in the debates is one of loyalty, how Sunak was not loyal to Boris because he left, which I think is a really bad argument. And I think any politician should see that as a gift to pick through it. It's like yeah integrity over loyalty to a bad thing you know so many things you could you could work with there but uh, sunak left because he saw something wrong and he seems to approach uh, politics in a more moderate commonsensical way Truss goes for a dogmatic thatcherism to the point where she dresses imitating thatcher on stage literally uh, sunak talks about how he wants a common sense thatcherism it's still thatcherism but it's on the better end of the spectrum. <laughs> you might say if you disagree with that politics uh, without taking an overt ideological side. And so from here in Ireland, our perspective, I think that is more acceptable. Someone who'll at least be able to sit on, around the table and talk, who knows what's right and that right is right and wrong is wrong, and who will hopefully um, become moved by the stories from the North with regards to our history, recent history, but also where it is we need to go uh, in terms of relations here in Ireland. North and South, but also between the UK and Ireland. So hopefully a Sunak uh, Prime Minister uh, would offer more, but I don't think it's likely that he'll win. It seems like the base is adamantly in support of uh, Truss because she's closer to the right than Sunak is. So Liz Truss Prime Minister, Liz Truss number 10, might be what is on offer. And I'm not going to lie, um, it's rather scary.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. Look, I, I hope that, you know, if Rishi was to do it and was to be one prime minister, uh, he would take the issue more seriously. Um, I think he's more of a kind of in the vein of like his, his kind of appearance and his approach and his charisma is more in the vein of the kind of David Cameron, George Osborne kind of Tory who's kind of more sensible and isn't kind of a clown, to put it frankly, like Boris Johnson. I think Liz Truss is just a slightly more uh, presentable clown. Um but uh, Rishi is more serious, so he might take the, ish, the Northern Ireland, Ireland issue more seriously. But I mean, if you look at it, it just seems to be something that the UK or I mean, so I suppose England, that there's lots of people in Northern Ireland who care about this um, mainstream kind of English media. It's something they just don't care about. And um, there was major debates on practically every network. And no one asked the candidates about the Northern Ireland protocol. It hasn't come up. They haven't spoke about it. And um, yet it's one of the biggest things that threatens the whole of the project of the UK because it threatens unity. Um, and the union, which the Tories are supposed to care about, but they evidently don't. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. And of course, you have the issue of Scottish independence as well. Um, so it's going to really test the kind of unionist aspect of the, the Conservatives. Um, but, yeah, and I suppose just to kind of think about the debate, if we just, for people who might not know, obviously we it's been whittled down to two candidates. So Liz uh, and Rishi, um, the MPs did that business. They kind of backed candidates until they got to the final two. Um, and now the membership, Tory party membership, will vote uh, for who they think will be uh, the better prime minister, the better leader of their party. And we'll get that result on September the 5th, which is crazy. That's so long away. The general elections happen quicker uh, than this leadership election. But anyway, we'll have to wait until then. Um, but yeah, predictions, I suppose. Uh, I think you're right. It looks like the riding's on the wall and it's going to be Liz Truss as prime minister, which, I mean, you said it's scary. It's most certainly scary um, to just... Um, with all due respect, I think she's incompetent. Um, you just need to look at some of her interviews and speeches over the years and uh, to say that she just doesn't seem like someone who should be prime minister uh, of one of the most um, influential countries in the world. Um, it, is, it is quite scary, but I would, if I was to predict, I'd say that Liz Truss is gonna be the next prime minister and next leader of the Tory party.
1: Yeah, I've actually seen uh, the, um people who submit a vote uh, of a, a conservative base, firstly, they're going to get their ballots at some point in August, I can't remember the exact dates, um, and then if they submit a vote, they can actually retract their vote and submit a new one uh, in, in support of someone else. So between now and then, I think, firstly, um, Sunak is going to be banking on the gap between now and the moment when ballots are received. And then also, it's going to be hoping that people retract their votes if they do vote in favour of trust. That's a serious commitment. Uh, a costly one that requires energy that I don't know people would be willing to expend for Rishi Sunak. Considering the fact that the Tory base is just so ideologically to the right, uh, Trust simply, I think, um, tickles those feathers better than Sunak does in terms of her politics. So it's going to be very interesting to see how things pan out. I think we can be sure that trust will have, Johnson, and uh, the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, staunch proxedars, if not in her cabinet, but in her ear, uh, guiding her with regards to policy, um, which is not going to be favorable for Ireland. So if she is Prime Minister, I'm hoping for a serious U-turn uh, in the approach and a recognition of the importance of maintaining peace in the North uh, for all of our, our sakes. And as you said, Luke, it's really interesting how in the debates, and I know this is a separate topic that we can probably get into in a different episode, the question uh, questions around the Northern Ireland Protocol weren't asked, really consequential ones, but the question, what is a woman, (laughs) uh, came up. You know, it talks, I think it alludes to, it points towards how strongly uh, the culture war, how pervasive it is within politics in this side of the world when it comes to serious matters, such as the question of who's going to be the next prime minister, how seriously it pervades our politics, the culture wars, uh, so much so that we forget other substantial uh, fundamental political questions, such as Dealing with Brexit, its residues, and peace in Northern Ireland and unity of the the unity of the Union. Um, it's going to be going to be interesting to see what what the next chapter holds uh, for UK politics, but also politics over here too, especially in light of this culture war influence.
0: For sure, yeah. And one of the biggest uh, topics of debate in the last debate was, uh, I think Nadine Dorries uh, attacked Rishi Sunak for wearing a very expensive suit that cost four thousand euro. And very expensive shoes, and said that Liz's earrings are from Claire's, and they cost four pound, um, and that's that's the level of debate that's happening. Yeah.
1: Crazy, Liz, Liz <laughs> and therefore she's a, a bastion of the working class. Yes, <laughs> you, you turned it based upon how much the earrings cost. <laughs> oh gosh, but um, I am really happy. Well, I wouldn't say happy, maybe a bit me but uh, i tend to be an optimistic person like why my, my my co-host luke um yeah i'm optimistic about the future of even if i'm pessimistic about the future of politics um in the british house i'm optimistic about uh, the future of the uh, the political and podcast uh and uh, you all can be too uh to my doctor uh my very kind doctor there will be more episodes to our listeners there will be more episodes in the near future And hopefully you get into a regular stream that you all can be happy with. And we're hoping to deliver premium content uh, around Irish politics and keeping you all up to date as to what's happening in Irish politics and doing some innovative, some cool things with regards to dealing with subjects in politics. We've definitely floated a lot of cool ideas over the past while. But thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Political Incorrectors podcast, our episode back. We've probably said that too many times. I hope a number of times we say back after uh, a closing when closing an episode uh, reduces into the future. Uh, and yes, we really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please um, follow us on uh, YouTube if you're watching the video. So subscribe to our channel. I like the video also if you can. We really appreciate that. Follow our podcast, p- and platforms, wherever you're listening to us. Make sure to like the podcast. That is really helpful for us and give us a high rating if you rate us highly, which I'm sure you do. Um, stay tuned for future uploads. Uh, we're definitely going to be back with an episode very, very soon. So thank you so much for joining us again with this episode. We're very excited to see you in the next one.
0: Bye.